News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Have your feelings about hockey changed? All the problems, all the scandals stemming from Hockey Canada. How are Canadians feeling about that? Well, we're about to find out. Sean Simpson joins us now, Ipsos Vice President of Public Affairs. Hello, Sean. Hello. Well, this is such an interesting topic because I've, you know, I've talked myself with so many people about this. What is it that you were asking Canadians? Well, we asked them whether or not they believed that the scandals that have recently come to light involving uh, players under Hockey Canada's jurisdiction, whether they believe these are isolated incidents and not reflective of the broader hockey culture, or if, in fact, they believe the scandals reflect a broader problem with sexual harassment, assault, and violence within hockey culture in Canada. What we found is that uh, only 20, sorry, only 18% believe that these are isolated incidents. 60% of majority believe that they reflect a broader problem within hockey Canada and culture within, within that sport. So it's not a branch, it's the root. We're rotten at the root, and, um, and that's not good news for the sport. Not that good news for the sport at all. Now, are people feeling that this is a hockey problem or more than that? More than that. In fact, uh, 85% uh, of Canadians believe that uh, hockey is, is really no different uh, and that uh, this problem of violence and sexual harassment uh, uh, is, is, is not just hockey, but rather organized sports uh, within Canada. Now, of course, hockey's in the light because we just tend to spend more attention, uh, pay more attention to hockey than other sports. But perhaps if we can carve out a way forward, a path forward for hockey, we can transfer uh, those methods um, to other sports as well. Okay, and in terms of accountability, then, do Canadians have feelings about who you know they're pointing the finger at here? Yes. So first and foremost, it's those who are the organizers and conveners, managers and coaches. So those mm. those in charge, uh, they feel that uh, these people have, have left us down. Perhaps they haven't set uh, a good standard, uh, a good example or haven't corrected behavior when they've, they've seen it in the, and just swept it under the rug. Second is the players themselves. Ultimately, people are responsible, accountable for their own actions. Uh, and Canadians believe that players have not done a good job policing themselves or others. And third, and this was quite interesting, is, is Canadians point the finger at parents, um, believing that maybe parents haven't sat their kids down, their children down, and say, okay, this is, uh, you know, what, what I expect of your behavior, what others expect of your behavior, uh, and, uh, and as a result, that lack of, of guidance and leadership is, has ultimately meant poor, poor behavior on part of the players. Sean, that is so interesting because, you know, some of the people that you would have asked these questions of are hockey parents themselves, no doubt. Indeed, 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 and 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 likely don't believe that they're part of the problem, but it's just other other parents and other other children. So, <laughs> so you know, a little bit of introspection may be required there to 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 identify whether everybody's doing their part to avoid uh, sexual violence. That is very true. That is usually the case. Uh, but what about like looking forward into the future? Then is this is this turning people off, or are they still hopeful? They're still hopeful. You know, at the end of the day, they're very supportive of the fact that sponsors have pulled their money. I mean, nothing nothing talks like money, right? This is forcing the board into action. They've resigned. 
Um, but uh, eight and ten are optimistic that you know we can right the ship, we can turn things around, and that confidence can once again be a st- be instilled in what may not be our official national sport. Of course, that's lacrosse, but the one that's sort of front and center in, in people's hearts. But they've they've identified sort of a three step process here. So the first Canadian says we need new board that is forthcoming. The board and CEO have stepped down. The second is that we need sexual uh, harassment training for all the players and everybody involved in, in the sport of, of hockey, just so that there can be greater awareness of, of, of what constitutes harassment, what doesn't, and, and hopefully as a result there will be better behavior. The third is that they believe there needs to be stricter rules, more training, and in fact better support services for survivors of harassment and violence. And that's one thing where, where you know it's really come to light that Hockey Canada has not been supporting survivors the way that they need to be. Many of the problems have been, you know, uh, uh, swept under the rug, uh, and and that is the opposite way that we need to be dealing with things. So with these new processes in place, Canadians do believe that, in fact, we can move forward uh, as a better country, uh, as a better organization, and and as a better sport. Hmm, So interesting. Sean, thank you. been my pleasure. That is Sean Simpson, Ipsos Vice President of Public Affairs, talking about this survey that they have done on how people are feeling about well, Hockey Canada right now and, and hockey culture, I guess, in general. And there were some very interesting results here. It turns out Canadians are not happy about you know what they've been hearing about Hockey Canada. And when you ask them who is to blame, 73% of the people they surveyed pointed the finger at the managers and directors of the organization. 64% pointed the finger at the coaches. And 60% said the players were also responsible for letting the culture persist there. So yeah, and they also, 85%, this is a huge number, 85% of the people they surveyed said that all of those sponsors that jump ship did the right thing. So they were like companies like TELUS and Tim Hortons and Canadian Tire and Scotiabank, Esso. All of those companies have cut ties with Hockey Canada for the upcoming season. And 85% of Canadians saying, yep, that was the right thing to do. Also, people are still hopeful. 78% said they are hopeful a new board will make a difference. And a whopping 80% also saying, you know, players should take training on sexual harassment and violence. That's the part that I still can't get over with this whole Hockey Canada situation, that they had slush fund after slush fund for paying off, you know, lawsuits and all that kind of stuff. But the one thing they didn't think of is, well, maybe we should completely overhaul our training and make this a part of our training for these players so we don't have to have these huge payouts. Funny how that never seemed to come up, did it? If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Did you know that up until recently, there was only one known northern spotted owl left in the wild in this province? Most definitely you could say it was endangered. But now there are three more of them out there. And these ones, well, they had some help, though. We're going to learn more about that right now with the help of Jasmine McCullough, who's a facility coordinator for the Spotted Owl Breeding and Release Program. Jasmine, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, I heard this was described as a monumental step forward. So what happened? Yeah, so the breeding program started in 2007. So this has been 15 years in the making. Um, we were able to release three owls into the wild just in August of this year. That's amazing. So three northern spotted owls that were all born and raised in a breeding facility. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. 
what what kind of effort did that take? A lot of time um, and effort and learning. It's the only breeding program in the entire world for the species. So we had to learn everything uh, ourselves. It's not something we could have looked up online. Um, so it was a, a challenge and there were um, a lot of uh, things we had to overcome to reach this milestone. I'm so curious about though how how you're helping these owls adjust to the wild. Like it's one thing to be born and raised in a breeding facility, but how do you accustom them to the wild? We did a lot of pre-release training for them. So we made sure that they were capable of hunting live prey before they were released. And they were also uh, a soft release, which means that we uh, made aviaries in the forest that they would be released into So we were able to let them acclimate to the the territory and then we opened the doors for them and let them um, kind of determine their own timing about when they wanted to leave. And uh, we've since been monitoring them with GPS trackers and radios and we can ensure that they're um, keeping safe and we can get visuals on them and check their health that way. Right. So So they've been there for a couple of months now, right? Right. Yes. And how are they doing? They're doing well. Uh, they've stayed in protected habitat, which is really important. Uh, they're an old growth dependent species. So um, making sure that they have the, the proper habitat for them has been important. And uh, we've been happy to, to see where they've been found and it's all in protected areas. Well, that's nice. So Jasmine, how did we get to the point though, where we had only one spotted owl left in the wild? Historically, there were about a thousand living here in, in British Columbia, which is the only place in Canada they're found. But over um, the last few hundreds of years, the logging industry and just urbanization has decreased the habitat. So habitat loss and fragmentation, um, as well as the barred owl, um, which is an invasive species from eastern North America, uh, has caused uh, the severe decline in their population. Right. So there weren't a huge number of them to begin with. and, And just the stress of time also did a toll. Right. Yes. They're found in Washington, Oregon, and Northern California as well, but they're facing similar threats in the United States too. So are there programs like this one anywhere else then? I know you said this was the first of its kind. Is it still the first of its kind? Yeah. There's no other programs doing what we're doing with spotted owls. So in the States, there's likely a possibility this will, uh, this breeding program will need to happen there as well. And we'll be helping out and kind of leading the charge on that. So what does it take then to raise a northern spotted owl? Um, A lot of uh, time to get the pairs to bond. So the the owls we have at the breeding facility, there's 30 of them, but um, it can take many years for that pair to to form a bond to produce fertile eggs. So once the eggs are produced, we will put them in an artificial incubator. We'll incubate the eggs and hand raise them for 10 days. So what's been really exciting for me is that I've been able to see these individuals from literally their first heartbeat um, in the egg to being released in the wild. So it's been a really exciting time for me and the whole team. Yeah, that is so cool. Are there, so you said there's 30 of them in the facility. So are some of them just not able to kind of make that leap into the wild? We have most of them retained for breeding so that we're able to enhance the population. So the plan is to have at least 10 breeding pairs at the breeding center and then releasing their offspring into the wild. Okay, so what is the plan then for further releases? Uh, It will depend on how we do for production of offspring in the next couple of years. Um, We had a really good year in 2021 where seven babies were born, which is the the most ever, which allowed us to do the release this past year. And um, we may be doing more future releases. We we, we will be doing more future releases. Um, I'm just not sure on exact timelines on that yet.
So how does that work then, Jasmine? Uh, like you're, you've got all these owls there and you have to essentially wait for them to decide if they like another owl? Yeah, pretty much. So <laughs> it, can be, uh, it can be a quick love connection at three weeks or it can be up to seven years. So we have to monitor the pair's behavior, which we do with cameras, and we can determine if they're making progress or not. So um, it's, it's a patient uh, you have to be very patient no in, in this game. <laughs> I'm no kidding. So some owls, I guess, you know what, if they don't like each other, then maybe they wait around for a couple of years and then they'll start liking each other. Yeah. Or we'll have to adjust uh, their aviary to make them more, the aviary look a little bit nicer so that they, the owls like each other a little bit more. Um, but we're limited with a small population about who is a suitable mate for who. So we have to uh, do genetic testing, and, and some of the owls um, are, are quite limited with their options. So eventually they, they will form the bond, we hope. So you're just, you're playing like an owl matching game here, dating game here. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, and we uh, monitor everything really closely, so we get to know these owls quite intimately. Oh my goodness, this is, this is such a cool job that you have when you describe it to people. So <laughs> for next year then, are you looking ahead? Are there possible pairs coming along? Like, how does it look? Yeah, we have some pretty promising pairs, um, including one of the offspring of the last known female um, from the, the spasm area. So we're, we're hopeful that we'll have at least one or two more pairs bonded for next year and um, hopefully a lot more offspring produced. Right. So ideally, you'd like to release more than three into the wild. Yeah. Ultimately, we hope to release 200 individuals to make a self-sustaining population which, of course, is not going to be, um, you know, a short-term project. This is probably going to be my career goal here um, (laughs) over the next 50 or so years. Jasmine, you must be getting calls, though, from all over the world about the work that's being done. Yeah, it's been really exciting. We have um, a lot of people, even all the way from New Zealand, who are interested in the program. So it's been a pretty exciting time, um, and we're learning a lot from other facilities. And Um, It's been a really interesting opportunity to learn about First Nations, too, and their role in this important project. I love it. It is so fascinating. Jasmine, thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you for for chatting with me. Uh, It's great. Jasmine McCullough is a facility coordinator for the Spotted Owl Breeding and Release Program. It's right here in BC. It is one of a kind, as you heard Jasmine say. It's nowhere else in the world. And they are raising spotted owls to be released into the wild, an endangered species right now. Uh, there were only, there was only one left before they released three into the wild that had been born and raised in their breeding facility. What incredible and fascinating work that they are doing there. It's amazing. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. You know, sometimes even I read a story online or come across something that makes my mouth hang open in shock. That actually happened to me on the weekend because it wasn't that long ago here on the show, maybe a month ago, that we were talking about Sashin Littlefeather. And Sashin Littlefeather, back in 1973, got on stage at the Academy Awards and accepted an Oscar, well, not really, kind of rejected an Oscar, I guess I should say, on behalf of Marlon Brando. And when she did that, she identified herself as a member of the Apache tribe and then talked about the way Native Americans have been treated. And it was a shocking moment in kind of television movie history. And, you know, she was blacklisted. Her acting career was over. And there was so much discussion about it. And then very recently, the Academy had issued an apology to her. They even had an exhibit 
with her that they developed at the Academy Museum, which just opened in Los Angeles in the last couple of years. And so there was a real kind of reawakening of this story. And then she had recently passed away, which is when we talked about it and how historic this was. And then I read this article on the weekend where two of her sisters came forward and said she lied, that their family is not at all Native American, that there's no Native American ancestry in their family. And it was shocking to read that this has kind of gone on for so long. And, you know, this seems to happen. These stories keep coming up. Notable people identifying as Indigenous who actually may not be. And this kind of once again illuminates how difficult this is. Well, our community contributor, Eric Chapman, spoke with policy analyst Rusty Abo about this recent trend of stories that we have been hearing about and the kind of policy that creates the opportunity to take advantage of those claims. Here's what he found. I, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, the Trudeau government, uh, when they came in 2015, they started using the term indigenous. Um, and I think the use of that term indigenous on their approach to reconciliation is so vague and broad that it's opened the door to all this self-identification of people proclaiming to be indigenous, uh, you know, having an indigenous ancestor. And that masks the diversity, you know, between uh, First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples, because even amongst First Nations, there's like 60 to 80 different, um, you know, indigenous nations across Canada. But when you use the word indigenous, right, it it just is a generic term that masks all that difference. So I've noticed it since 2015. And also there was a court case called the Daniels case. The Supreme Court of Canada, um, you know, handed down a decision regarding um, Métis and non-status uh, Indians. And... Um, you know, since then, a lot of uh, people have latched on to that case um, to back up their self-identification as Indigenous. So, you know, it's it's part of the um, opportunities, I guess, the federal government is, is giving people are doing it to get some kind of advantage, scholarships or, you know, bursaries or, or um, access to government programs. Um, seems to be uh, linked to that, you know, that people are claiming to be Indigenous. Okay, I wonder if we can maybe take a learning moment here to, when you say Indigenous, so so when I, re- maybe when I refer to you, I should, should I refer to you as a, a, a Mohawk person? Like specifically when referring to people? Is that what you're talking about? We should, we need to be specific when we have these conversations and are dealing with these issues. I would say yes. Yeah. I am a Mohawk person. I'm a member of the Mohawk Nation of Gunawage. Um, So I do have a specific uh, family and, and community and nation that I'm part of. So it's not a generic, uh, a generic term. And in fact, I think kinship and community are, are the bottom lines, right? Um, right? In Indian country, you know, they ask who's your parents or who's your grandparents. Right away, they want to situate you terms of relationships, right? So right away, they want to know who your ancestors are, your parents. Um, That's a common question. I don't care which nation you go to. They ask that of somebody, you know, if they show up. What are some other policy problems that create this? The federal government controls um, 
who's recognized as an indigenous person. Like even in the Indian Act, right? Even on a status card, you know, an Indian status card, it says you're an Indian within the meaning of the Indian Act, right? These are all legal fictions that have come about from the federal government, but they control um, membership. They define who an Indian is and who is Indian isn't. Um, they they have a criteria for determining what they'll recognize as a Métis group uh, or an Inuit group, right? Um, the federal government controls the creation of new bands and new reserves. Uh, it's not First Nations that do that. It's Ottawa that does that. So Ottawa's still doing that today with all this talk of reconciliation and a nation-to-nation relationship. The Trudeau government is still using the the controls uh, in the management systems they have in place um, to decide who an Indigenous uh, people is, are and Indigenous persons. They use the term Indigenous governing bodies, uh, Indigenous governments, um, you know, this is all new language that's come in uh, really since 2015. But it opens the door, like I said, to people being able to say, oh, I'm indigenous, right? Instead of saying, oh, I'm a member of the Mohawk Nation. And right away, when you start to be specific, I'm a member of the Cree Nation, or I'm a treaty Indian, <laughs> you know, people can then start saying, well, who's your family? Where do you come from? Right? Yeah. And you need to answer questions. You can't just say, well, that's personal. I'm not going to tell you. Well, <laughs> If you're out there proclaiming that, right, if you're saying I'm Indigenous or I'm a treaty Indian or whatever, then you really need to uh, locate yourself and say, okay, this is, uh, this is my relationship. This is where I come from. It's an interesting conversation. That is Rusty Abo, First Nations policy analyst and policy consultant, uh, talking with community contributor Eric Chapman about this issue. And the thing is, I mean, he was citing 2015 and the use of the term Indigenous, but as we've seen now with the case I was just talking about, it happens everywhere. It happens in the United States. And they certainly do not use the term Indigenous, um, and certainly not the way we do here in Canada. So uh, more and more of these cases, it is a frustrating situation for sure. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Lots of stories in the news right now, especially from the U.S., talking about pediatric hospital beds that are full because of a surge of respiratory illnesses. These are illnesses involving children. So can we avoid this here in B.C. and in Canada? Or what are we seeing out there? Is it just in the early stages? Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director of the Vancouver Infectious Diseases Centre. Good morning, Dr. Conway. Good morning, Simi. What do we know about this virus, this pediatric virus that they're all talking about in the U.S.? Well, we're learning about respiratory viruses uh, all together. Beyond the flu, beyond COVID, there's things like respiratory syncytial virus, RSV. There's enterovirus, enterovirus being a virus that's present in the late summer, uh, early fall, which is about now, especially with climate change. Because we haven't had circulating respiratory viruses for a couple of years, Background immunity in the community is less, especially in younger children. It's leading to serious illness and some hospitalizations. Are we seeing the beginnings of that here? Yes, we are. RSV has really been uh, something that my pediatric colleagues have been mentioning. Um, We've let our guard down. Uh, In the past couple of years, we've not had too many infections, and we've been distancing quite significantly. So I think that uh, now as we renormalize society, it's not a surprise that we're seeing this. We need to be careful. 
So how would we recognize this? Like, is it different from other viruses? They all exist on a spectrum from kind causing sort of a minor uh, cold to a more serious flu. RSV can be particularly insidious in, in causing particularly severe disease. To some extent, we rely on the fact that it's caused a lot of mild disease in the community one year after another. So there's some level of background immunity that uh, that people might have. We don't even have that because there's not been any circulating virus for a couple of years. So we anyone, especially a young child, who is developing a fever, a cough, and really looks unwell, I think this is a great time to go seek help and understand if, uh, if uh, this is uh, requiring more attention. It almost sounds like, Dr. Conway, we can't win, right? We isolate to avoid something as serious as COVID-19, but as a result of that isolation, then we kind of miss the lower level ones, which then can make us more sick later on. Absolutely. So the things that we need to do is to get vaccines for the things against which we have a vaccine, be it COVID, be it influenza. If you're sick, try and stay home. Or if you're out in, in, the, in the general population, uh, wear a mask. Keep washing your hands because these viruses spread from someone's, from your own nose to your own hands to someone else's hand to their nose. So if you wash your hands, you interrupt that cycle. So as we get back to the new normal, all of these very simple measures, I think, will continue to be in place in the very long term and will help us during this transition period. Is this impacted at all by the flu shot? Like, would it help with this? Absolutely. The flu shot will eliminate influenza. And if you're sick with one virus, you're more susceptible to being infected with another virus. So certainly it would help. Absolutely. Now, what do you think about how the flu shot campaign has been going? Because it seems to me that it's all over the map, right? Like, yes, they're using the booking system, but then I hear from people that they had no problem getting it, but other people are waiting. Well, I think we should take advantage of the fact that the old system that we had before this booking system was very robust and was very effective. Last year, just getting your flu shot the old-fashioned way, 40% of the general population, 70% of those over 65 got their shots. It's surprising to me that we're not using that infrastructure. In addition, if you want to use the booking system we developed for COVID and and people want to do that, that's great. But just doing it the old-fashioned way was great. Let's try and get as many people vaccinated as as fast as possible and in in as many ways as possible. Right. So the key here, do you think, then, is just making it as easy as possible so somebody can just walk in and say, I'd like to get my flu shot? Absolutely. I think people are fatigued of the vaccine. I've heard some people that got that text, you're eligible for a vaccine. They didn't read it all. They said, but I just got my COVID shot and they deleted it. So I think we just need to to use the system in a way that we knew it worked before COVID and supplemented with some of the structures we have in for COVID, do everything we can to get that flu shot out there as many people as quickly as possible. Are you worried about this upcoming flu season? I'm extremely worried based on the Australian experience during their winter, which is finishing. It was a record year, uh, the highest since 2017. And that often predicts what happens in the Northern Hemisphere. So I am very worried. Our main protection is the vaccine. And this year, not to complicate things, there's two different vaccines. One's for those under 65 and something called an enhanced vaccine for those over 65 in the community. So there'll be two vaccines, one better for those over 65. There'll be ways in which you can get it and the risk of a severe flu season. So we need to take it seriously right now. 
Okay, so clearly there needs to be, do you think, a, a greater push on it or not enough people doing it? Absolutely. I think right now people have said, I called my doctor to get my flu shot like I've had for the last 20 years. And my doctor said, well, I'm not giving us flu shots this year. I was told I can't. So I think any barrier that we put up to having access to flu shots doesn't help us. Okay, so then your advice is do this and do this soon. Do this soon. Do this as soon as you can. And if you're eligible to get your COVID booster, you can do both at the same time. So that's even better. And let's get that information out too. All right. Sounds good. Dr. Conway, thank you for that. Always a pleasure, Simi. Appreciate your time. That's Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director of the Vancouver Infectious Diseases Centre. You are hearing a lot from, you know, doctors in the medical community right now about these new viruses. This one is an enterovirus called D68. It's really causing a lot of issues for kids in particular south of the border. So in the United States, right now they've got something like 70% of pediatric hospital beds full of a surge of respiratory illnesses and there is a lot of concern about what is headed our way. Uh, and yeah, kids are you know sick all the time and having been isolated or separated for the last couple of years and then they go back to school and everybody's back together and not wearing masks and now you can see what is happening. And not just kids, right? Adults too. Feels like there's a very high rate of people being sick right now out there. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Will you be sending your officers back here to go through the formal apology process with the Health Tech Nation? Well, that's something that we're going to work through with our union and with the officers, and we'll see if we can come to a resolution on that. Can you say why they're not here today? There's personal reasons why they're not able to be here today. That is Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer talking yesterday about why the two Vancouver Police Department constables who were disciplined for wrongfully handcuffing Heltzik's grandfather and his granddaughter outside a bank in 2019 were not in Bella Bella yesterday for this very significant, very important apology ceremony. The police chief was there, members of the Vancouver Police Union were there, but the two arresting officers who were invited to go there were kind of part of the whole apology ceremony, the reason why it was happening. They were not there. So the Health Nation said they, they took the apology ceremony and reworked it as an uplifting ceremony instead. But there's been criticism about, well, why, why couldn't we make this happen? Why couldn't this much-needed healing ceremony take place? I mean, those two officers should have been there. Why weren't they there? Well, joining us now to talk about this is Faye Whiteman, the spokesperson for the Vancouver Police Board. Faye, thank you for being here. You're very welcome, Sunny. What is it that the police board wanted to say about this? We wanted to honour the um, the parts of the agreement whereby we said that we would come up and partake in a, in a healing ceremony. And uh, we wanted to show that we are um, we, we want to move forward with this. We want to ensure that the two individuals are, are moving along the path of healing. We wanted to hear and listen to both the Health Nation and other First Nations individuals that have, you know, that have gone through probably years of... Um, unpleasant behavior, discrimination, and we wanted to hear from them as part of our own learning experience. Isn't this, though, Faye, about more than, you know, an agreement and the, the letter of the agreement? It, it, is it not about, like, a learning opportunity here? Absolutely. That's what I was saying, is that I think it's a, totally a learning opportunity. There's been many things the board has already undertaken in terms of um, expanding our own knowledge about Indigenous um, 
past history and how we can improve it. But it was absolutely a learning experience. And I think that was what all of us are taking away from, from this. We heard people speak um, from the heart about many, many years of, of uh, discriminating behavior towards them as First Nations. Uh, we heard that loud and clear. And so it was very much a learning experience for all of us. Were you disappointed that the two officers here couldn't make it? This would be a different story if, if they had. I think that I understand um, why the first why the two officers did not go. Um, we are the, the board is the respondent on the human rights case, not the officers. So, um, in keeping with the terms of the settlement, we made our best efforts to, uh, for the officers to attend, inviting them, making reservations, that sort of thing. But I can understand why they might have been somewhat reluctant to face the onslaught, quite frankly, of the media uh, in terms of coming up. I wonder, though, wouldn't it have been better, to, would there have been as much of an onslaught if the, if they hadn't known that they weren't going to be there? It could have been a quieter situation if they actually had gone. Well, with all due respect to others that might have said something different, they were aware that a week ago that the officers were not coming up. Okay. Is there any opportunity here then, Faye, moving forward to to do this perhaps again in a, in a quieter fashion? Well, certainly the officers did apologize at the time uh, of the incident, and they have issued a written apology as well. And they indicated all along they would be willing to meet with the family, with the, the um, with both the grandfather and the young girl, and uh, with the family members, and offer that apology. So, sure, it, it may be possible that they're still willing to do that. Is that something you would encourage? I think for all people involved to to get through this this uh, incident, then yes, it would be great if that happened in a safe uh, environment for everyone. So I know that people have a very kind of visceral reaction when they see the kind of video and they talk about this story because a lot of people, you know, they just, they really feel impacted by what happened there. So then, Faye, what kind of training has happened? Like, are you, would this, are you confident that this would not happen again? Yes, I am. Uh, the board took immediate action in terms of changing the handcuffing policy so that it addresses the whole issue of cultural uh, differences and, and cultural sensitivity. Um, there's a number of training programs that were already in place, but we've added to them. We've, are, as a board ourselves, we've gone, we have gone through EDI training. Uh, we know that the officers, as not just the two that were involved, but all of the members um, are going through training and uh, workshops. So I would hope that it wouldn't happen again. And I totally empathize with Mr. Johnson. I have a 13-year-old granddaughter as well. If my granddaughter had been handcuffed, I would mm. be enraged. Yeah. And I said that last night. I said that last night at the healing ceremony. I totally understand, you know, their, their anger, their hurt, their frustration with what happened. I, I wonder about that. Yeah, of course. I think anybody would. That's what gets this people yeah. going with this story. I wonder though, Faith, like, do we need do you need cultural sensitivity training to just understand that maybe we shouldn't put handcuffs on a twelve year old girl? Well, I think that's why the handcuff policy was changed to address that. One would think that common sense would prevail, but. Um yeah. You know, what can I say? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's the other thing that gets people about this story. So, okay, so then, Faye, what, what would you like the public to know about this movie for? Well, clearly, these are not the types of headlines that I think Vancouver police would like right now or need right now. Yeah. So what, what do you want the public to know here? I want the public to know that um, this is a really good police force, that they are 
open to change, that they have addressed many, many issues having to do with diversity and, and working with First Nations. Um, they are committed to that process. They are committed to ongoing um, training and, and, and education, cultural sensitivity. They are a good force. Did a mistake happen? Absolutely a mistake happened. But when you look at the number of uh, incidences that the police deal with on a daily basis, you know, it's, it was a mistake. And that's not to minimize it at all. It should never have happened. But I think moving forward, what you will see is that this is a good police force. They People should have faith in, in them and the officers and what they're doing. And they should have faith in the board that we're over, the, the oversight role that the board plays. All that's right. what I would want people to know. Okay, faith. And, and there's years, you know, there's years of, of injustice to First Nations that we're we aren't going to be able to undo. What we can do as a police force is to move forward in a positive way, working with them. Faye, thank you so much for your time this morning. You're welcome. Thanks Appreciate you. that. Faye Whiteman is the Vancouver Police Board spokesperson uh, talking about this whole situation, which, again, not the kind of headlines that the Vancouver police need or want right now, but also could have been easily fixed if these two officers had gone on that flight, booked it, gone to the ceremony, and yeah, okay, there was a media onslaught, but I think my opinion is that the media onslaught was there because we had heard in advance that they weren't going to be there. If they had gone, would it have been as much attention? It would have been some attention, not the huge amount that it got, though, mainly because the two officers didn't go and participate in that apology ceremony. Police chief was there. The police board was there. Police union was there. The two officers who put the handcuffs on the 12-year-old girl were not there. And I think that is actually still what bothers people about that. Is there an opportunity to fix it? One would hope, right? One would hope that, yes, there is still some discussion and some healing that needs to happen there. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. It's very simple. When we call for an ambulance, when we need that help, we would like that ambulance to be there and show up in a relatively timely manner, right? And yet we know story after story of how that has just not been the case. And in small communities around BC, even more of a concern that they don't even have enough paramedics to staff some of those ambulances. So we take it as potentially good news, right, that the BC government and the union representing paramedics have come to a what they call a temporary deal that is meant to boost ambulance staffing in rural and remote communities. Let's find out more about it and whether or not we think this is going to work. Troy Clifford joins us now, president of the union representing paramedics and dispatchers and also an active paramedic himself. Troy, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Sammy. Uh, good morning. Tell me about this deal. What is it? Yeah, so, you know, it's, uh, as you described it, it's uh, some temporary measures to help us help us bolster uh, immediately. Um, this is We've been trying to uh, push and lobby and, and do anything we uh, can since uh, probably really since last summer when we've been talking on a regular basis about the delays that we're seeing and people not getting an ambulance in their time of need. So um, there's been some temporary measures that really have not come to fruition to really make a significant difference, as you know. And so uh, over the last three weeks, uh, I, I've been really engaging the parties to truly push them to get some temporary measures that will hopefully help um, in the short term while we uh, look at longer term solutions at the, at the bargaining table and, and separate to that. That's why these initiatives have been placed. By, by no means, I don't want to, you know, I'm optimistic about them, but I'm not, by, by no means is this a fix to the ambulance service. And I don't want to uh, allude right. that this in any way, shape is going to fix all our problems. Right. But, and you did say temporary. So how long will these be in effect for? So they go till December 31st, um, and they're to be reviewed by the parties. We can jointly init- uh, in, um, sorry, we can jointly uh, 
extend them, but uh, it's to be reviewed by December 12th for the January scheduling. Uh, so we'll see where we're at with bargaining, where we're at. Hopefully we'd have a collective agreement by then and we can have longer term solutions. So um, they're in place till December 31st to hopefully help stabilize some of the staffing, primarily in rural and rural BC. Right. Let's talk about some of the critical aspects of this kind of temporary deal then. Sounds like the pager pay, so the pay that paramedics get for just being on call, that's a significant boost. Yeah, it is. It's, a, it's something that you know we've been talking about, that that $2 an hour precarious model is just really an outdated model that is absolutely not uh, acceptable and uh, and it hasn't worked to keep people at, at work or bring people in. So this is a significant boost to recognize uh, those people that are will carry a pager to be unavailable in a community. Um, so that helps a lot. Um, Because that's so that's so tough for people, isn't it? That, yeah, okay, you may not be working, working, but you still have to be ready to go at a moment's notice. So you can't really ever fully relax. Exactly. And that's uh, really, uh, there's other uh, models like this, but uh, we're definitely the lowest paid or compensated for that call-out portion. And then when they do get at work, they're paid their regular paramedic wages. So this just gives you a, a little more of a stipend. To, and our goal with this is to encourage people that have chosen not to work or uh, don't have the options in their communities. Um, so to increase their availability and work a little more, uh, and uh, hopefully this right. will help with some interim compensation. Okay, so that goes from the on-call pay goes from $2 an hour to $12 an hour. And what about um, like overtime and recall shifts and things like that? Yeah, so uh, in in metro and urban primarily and and some rural communities, we have full-time shifts, which definitely works. But uh, because of all the vacants we have and our inability to recruit and retain, there's a lot of open shifts. So, uh, you know, paramedics are already maxed out. They're working as much as they can. Um, so our goal with this, this is not going to fix. We don't want to overburn out or bur- continue to burn out uh, and exasperate the problem. But if you are coming to work and choose to work a, a shift on your days off, you'll be compensated consistent with other uh, emergency services like police and fire and nursing and that sort of stuff in the same manner at a double time rate. And that prim- that is for weekends and uh, evenings and nights. So those are our toughest shifts of to fill obviously on overtime because uh, right. uh, of the the time frames and people have uh, other situations. So, so right. that won't fix uh, our shortages of ambulances, but it will help. And any our sort of role is anything we can uh, get to fill any additional ambulances is uh, helps out uh, in the long run. I guess so. This won't add new people, Troy, but will it help you keep the people that you've got? That's the more of the intent. We're using our own employees and, and hopefully uh, and our members and hopefully compensating them enough to make make them a little more uh, uh, acknowledged at work. Uh, definitely. The other key thing to this is that uh, with this temporary agreement, and it, it by all means doesn't fix everything, like I said, but it also gives hope that we're we're on a path to forward, and this is a step in the right direction. There's no question. Okay, so how are negotiations going, by the way? Because I know that this is all temporary and, uh, until yeah. the province and the union kind of reach a deal in the contract negotiations. So how is that going? Uh, it's been slow. We started officially at the table on October 3rd, and we've been uh, essentially two weeks, and we really haven't made significant progress, but that's fairly early. Um, you know, there's quite a big... Uh, there's, we, we came in with a significant uh, reduced packet to really try and get uh, a collective agreement as quick as possible that addresses those those four big ticket items, the disparity in wages between us and public safety and health, police and fire, that 30% gap, our mental health challenges and wellness, um, the employee benefits the side of that, but also our, our staffing model that we've been talking about and our rural and rec- 
and our recruit and retention. Can't talk this morning, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? There's a lot of information to get out there, too, though, yeah. Troy, because we've talked about specifically like the rural ambulance situation. Are we seeing any improvements with that? Because it felt like at a, for a point there that it was such a critical thing that it might be broken. Yeah, it, it, we're not seeing significant improvements, and, and that's why we need to get to real meaningful changes to that service delivery and our recruitment and retention. That's what those The four items I just mentioned are our big ticket items. It's not better today than it was the last time we talked to me or that going back. It's getting that's still 30%, 40% of our ambulances are parked unstaffed, and that's why we're seeing these delays that are tragic, and uh, we have to address that, and we need a, a, a you know a, a contract and a a model. It's not all about collector agreement. There's about service delivery here, and that's where I'm working. Well, they work at the system, work through at the table, but I'm continuing to work with government, BCHS, um, anybody that'll listen, basically, that we need to fix the ambulance service. We have a great model. We shouldn't throw throw it out. We need to fix it. Right. Because uh, it's, it's not just about the money, though, right? Because as you're Absolutely. pointing out with the service delivery, there's little things that we could probably do to, to help the situation, too, like the tie-ups that happen when, yeah. when paramedics are, are delivering patients to the hospital. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, alternate pathways and uh, secondary triage, which means, that, you know, when you call for an ambulance and you may not need an emergency ambulance, can we uh, we send you to a uh, referral through another process? You know, we know that opiates and, and mental health, the best place for them, unless they're having an immediate crisis is, or an emergency crisis, is not in the back of an ambulance or emergency department. But in a lot of cases, that's the default and that's the only place that... Uh, they can go. So that's not the best care or the best practices. So that's what we're working on is alternate pathways and, um, you know, our community paramedic program to be able to refer people and, and get them to the right care at the right time. So it's not about just that spending more money. It's about making sure we can uh, keep the ambulances available for emergency, but make sure everybody gets them in their time of need. So there's a, you're right. It's not mm-hmm. just about the it's about being part of the conversation of uh, primary health care, you know, working with the uh, in the communities and, and making sure that we're part of the community health, uh, the general physicians and that model that the government's been talking about. And also, you know, that I'll just quickly say about the health human resources plan that the ministry announced a couple of weeks ago. That stuff is critical for implementation in the in the BC Ambulance Service, because those are how we're going to long term. Uh, once we implement that into BCHS, and I'm not sure how that's going to happen, mm-hmm. but those are the things that are going to get us staff and recruitment and retention. Well, we can be hopeful about that. Troy, thank you. Yeah, thank you. I, I am hopeful, but we've got a little work to do still, for sure. Sounds like it. Troy Clifford, president of the union representing paramedics and dispatchers, also an active paramedic, talking about this temporary deal reached between the union and the BC government. This is meant to maybe boost ambulance staffing, but definitely to retain ambulance staffing levels, particularly in rural and remote communities, doing something like boosting on-call pay, right? If you're on-call and a paramedic in some of these small communities, you can't really go anywhere because you might be needed, Uh, but they were being paid $2 an hour to be on-call. That is going to get boosted up to $12 an hour. And then they're also increasing the rate for overtime and recall shifts on evenings and weekends. And this is all working towards uh, a contract which they just started negotiations, as Troy said, but they're slow and they're hoping things move a little bit faster too. But so far, that that's actually good news for paramedics. You want them to be happy. You want the system to work.